Psalm chapter number 8, as we continue our series in Believable, week 4. And you might, if you want to pull out your notes, and you can follow along with some blanks today. Psalm chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. The Bible says this, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of babes and infants thou hast ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the fields, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. I want you to notice a phrase that shows up twice in this scriptural reading, and it's the work of God's hands, the fact that God is able to work and intricately design this universe in such a way that leaves us captivated with wonder and speechless awe. We continue this theme of looking at God's creation in Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims his handiwork. There's that idea again of God fashioning with his hands, handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Basically, God's saying there that communication, that he exists, is universally known. He's made it clear in creation. So that, Paul can say in Romans 1.20, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So we're in this series, Believable, and last week we started basically making our case for the existence of God, not just an assertion, but an argument. An argument is an assertion backed up by um, evidence, clues, if you will. And we take all these clues, sort of like a breadcrumb trail, and we piece them together. And it's the weight of the evidence that leads us to make reasonable conclusions. And, and, and at some point, there is faith involved, like, like any decision in life. But, um, and so we started this last week and looked at the cosmological argument for the existence of God. And we, did, we didn't get past the first three words in the Bible in the beginning. We spent 50 minutes on just those three words. We could spend 50 weeks, I'm sure, on the implications of that. I hope that, again, this series is really just a launching point and a spark for you to continue a study deeper. And so that's why we have that resource table out there and the small group to follow. By the way, that small group has grown and we'll be meeting up in the drive through room right over the drive through area of our church. So if you need help in getting there, just go upstairs and follow the noise and you'll be able to get over there for our small group. It's been great. And so we looked last week at this idea of the cosmological argument. Everything that had a beginning had a cause. The universe had a beginning. 
We looked at those two premises and then based our conclusion, therefore the universe has a cause. And we gave some evidence for the universe having a beginning. And, it, and we used the acrostic surge, the second law of thermodynamics. The universe is expanding radiation afterglow from the creation event. Get great galaxy seeds and Einstein's theory of general relativity. And so we really were just making a basic case that there was a beginning. And even secular, non-believing science, uh, they've tried to avoid it. We shared several quotes last week from scientists who found what they were finding irritating. I found that so interesting that uh, Einstein's general theory of relativity was irritating to him. Uh, And it's because they didn't like where that was pointing them. They didn't like where that was bringing them to see, oh, the universe did have a actual beginning. And so this is what we looked at last week. This week we're looking at the teleological argument uh, in this second part of the series or in the second part of looking at the existence of God the teleological argument. Um, When the universe leaped into existence from nothing, as we looked at last week, the question we want to ask today is, did it do so with any measure of specificity, say that word fast three times, specificity or complexity, or was it just some chaotic random explosion? I think we have to be careful with words. We had a great conversation last week in our small group about this. When I say Big Bang, um, I am not assuming all the secular implications of that word. I'm just saying that there was some gigantic creation event at some point in the past. And as we get on into this series in a few weeks, we're going to look at old earth, young earth, old universe, young universe, and talk about evidence for both uh, and really show where the evidence is pointing, uh, even with a guest speaker that we have coming in. But the point is this, that as we look at this grand event where time, space, matter, to some extent of our understanding, leapt into existence out of nothing, the question is, was this just a chaotic, random thing, or is there specificity and complexity, and what logical conclusions, if there is specificity and complexity, what does that point us toward? Um, and so there is not, as, as we're going to see, there's a caused creation that has clear design, complexity, purpose, and intentionality. And so the teleological argument there in your notes, you can write down the formal argument. It's this, every design has a designer. This is William Paley's famous watch. Maybe you've heard it before. Um, William Paley came up with this argument that you would not logically walk into a forest and see a watch around and assume that over the span of hundreds of thousands of years, all the elements somehow just came together and out popped a watch on the forest floor. No, you would assume that someone with intelligence and design had been there before and that that watch had a watchmaker or every painting has a painter or every poet or or every poem has a poet. So that's the idea of this design argument. Every design has a designer, that's premise one. Premise two is the universe and life have highly complex design. So we're going to look at that today. That's where most of our sermon is going to center around is examining that second premise. Because each argument is based on two premises and then a conclusion. And so I think premise one goes without saying. I don't think anyone would say here that um, a watch didn't have a watchmaker, a painting didn't have a painter, a poem didn't have a poet, a song didn't have a songwriter. So I think we would all agree that premise one is obvious to human reasoning, but the big question in the big debate 
is did the universe, does universe and life have a highly complex design? And so that's premise B that we'll be looking at highly today, which then derives our conclusion, therefore the universe and life have a designer. And so you take premise A and then premise B and then it leads to the conclusion of, every, of the universe and life has a designer. In 1988, a study was done on the overall psychological state of Americans. They, they were uh, questioning the baby boomer generation. Uh, the, the folks who were born just after World War II, how many of you would consider yourself a baby boomer? Raise your hand if you're a baby boomer. Come on, be proud. There you go. We got the baby boomers here. We're so thankful for the baby boomers. But they did a study uh, way back in 1988. Some of y'all weren't born yet. Teenagers, I'm looking at you. Uh, 1988, they did this study, and it was discovered that that generation, the baby boomers, catch this, they were 10 times more likely to suffer from depression than the previous generation. A huge spike in depression in the baby boomer generation. They dug into this and they asked themselves why this was the case. Why were they suffering 10 times more from depression? And the overwhelming evidence from this survey and from this study came back that the baby boomer generation felt like they had no purpose. They had no purpose. I think what they were running into is the reality that the purpose of this life is not the satisfaction of our desires. The purpose of life is to know God and make him known. And what happens is, is we have generations of people, not just the baby boomer generation. I'm going to assume that if this was the way it was in 1988, 1988, it's probably even worse today. And, and we can see that with suicide rates and, and all the mental illness that is faced in our culture today. And what's sad is we've wandered away from humanity's, what I believe as a Christian, to be humanity's true purpose. And we have selfishly sought out the fulfillment of every desire and have found that we can never fulfill them. We cannot find the happiness or the contentment that we were so desperately searching for. And Jesus, when he was on earth, even alluded to this when he said, whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's an interesting paradox, isn't it? You think the only way to find your life is to hang on to it with all of your hopes and and try to get all that you can get. But Jesus is saying, no, it's the opposite. And so we cannot acquire happiness on a store shelf. (laughs) No, happiness is a byproduct that finds you when you find something greater. Now, what does this have to do with our discussion today about the teleological argument? And um, again, I'm going to try to make this not feel like a science lecture today, but it's kind of science lecture part two. Next week, hold on, we're getting into the moral argument and a lot of the big questions that um, skeptics struggle with about evil, pain, and suffering in the world. But today it will be kind of science lecture part two, but um, just follow along with me. But why do I mention this illustration from the 1980s with the baby boomers and they're struggling to find purpose? And starting here, but it's because the teleological argument shows us this. It shows us that the universe does have purpose if it's designed. And if the universe has purpose, then so do all of us in this room. And so if we're struggling to find our purpose in life, find comfort and hope in the teleological argument. Now, I, I hope that'll make sense by the end of the, the message today that this argument 
really does give us a sense of appreciation and awe for the fact that God could speak this universe into existence and divine uh, and design it with such divine specificity and complexity and to see that this was all done for a purpose and if all of this was done for a purpose then it's only logical to conclude that wow we have some great purpose and so the purpose of life is discovering that purpose and and knowing God and making him known. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the sun or the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? It's like a rhetorical question. David is, is writing and he's like, he considers the grandeur of creation, but then he's in a, in a rhetorical way saying, wow, God, you're also concerned about me. As we heard this morning in the scripture reading from Russ, as he read that, we were intricately woven together. So as we look at this argument, let's start out with this. What is science? I told you this is gonna be a little bit of a science lecture today, mixed in with the word of God, amen? Because science and the Bible aren't in competition. They are right there in correlation together and we're thankful for that. So what is science? Science is simply this. It's a search for causes. And so when we do science, as I mentioned to you last week in the law of causality, as we were talking about the cosmological argument for the existence of God, when we do science, we cannot do science without the assumption of the law of causality at work. And if you remember the illustration of the dominoes falling over, right? And so we assume that there's causes in this universe. And so what is science? It's simply a search for causes. It's a search for knowledge through observation, experimentation, evaluation. We're looking at the law of causality, cause and effect. And so it's the search for causes. And there's two primary types of causes that science looks at when they're evaluating scientific questions. And those are these, both natural causes, you can put that there in your notes, natural causes and intelligent causes or you could say non-natural, but that didn't sound, you know, natural and non, no, natural and intelligent. So natural causes and intelligent causes. Um, for example, your worship guide that you hold on to was not a product of natural cause, okay? It wasn't like we put a stack of paper out on the back property and raccoons overnight came and drew all those fancy little pictures on your paper this morning. Everybody agree raccoons didn't do that? Yeah, we had a Xerox copier that did that. We had an intelligence, a couple of intelligences, we think, who put that worship guide together, our pastoral staff. And so you would assume logically that this wasn't the product of raccoons drawing on the back property last night. All right, anyway, I can, I can tell y'all are awake this morning. And so that's not natural, that's an intelligent cause. Let's look at some examples of this because here's the point. Unfortunately, in this debate about origins, intelligent causes get ruled out before an honest evaluation of the premises that lead to the conclusions in the argument. So when we look at these two premises in the argument, let's just go back and look at that for a moment, wherever it's at. <laughs> There it is. The, the premise is specifically in point two, intelligent causes get totally um, point, uh, put out of even consideration. So let's do a couple of examples here, okay? And let me get through my notes. All right, here is what, and, and I've never had a chance to go here, and I'm looking forward to this one day of going to see the Grand Canyon. How many of you have been to the Grand Canyon? Beautiful, uh, amazing to behold. But the Grand Canyon is one type of cause, 
Mount Rushmore is another type of cause. Would everybody agree? So Mount Rushmore is the, is the um, result of intelligent causes. We would not look at Mount Rushmore and say, oh, that happened by wind, water, uh, you know, uh, uh, we would not say that, that happened by natural erosion, all right? On the left-hand side is natural causes. Now, within natural causes, we're not saying that there wasn't some intelligence that spoke all of that into existence. We're just saying that how that canyon formed, well, we weren't there to necessarily see it. So we know it happened with water and wind, primarily water, and there's two beliefs about the water. You know, did it happen with a little water over a long time or a lot of water over a short time? I happen to think it's probably a lot of water over a short time, but the point is, is that water was, is the natural cause of that. We know on the right-hand side that water was not the natural cause of Mount Rushmore. Another example would be ripples in the sand. When we look at that, is that a natural cause? Yes, of course, that's a natural cause. Wind erosion, wind formed those ripples in those sand dunes. But when we look at this, a sand castle, we know logically that that wasn't the result of wind erosion, right? So we look at one and we say, okay, that's an intelligent cause. And we look at the other and we say, that's a natural cause. Now, the reason I start with this is because of where we're about to go. So when we look at Mount Rushmore and we say, okay, in the present, we see that Mount Rushmore was obviously the act of an intelligent cause. And then we look on the left and we see a monument, a statue. This is a Buddha statue before they were all blown up in Afghanistan. Uh, this statue was believed to have been made in 1000 BC. And it's very, very big. In fact, I, I wish I had scale on here, but it's 50 stories high, uh, probably higher than that. And so we wouldn't look at this from, a thousand, from 1000 BC and assume that that was wind and water. We know that someone back in 1000 BC did that. Does that make sense? Everybody follow so far? And what we use in looking back at the past and assuming that and inferring that is the principle of uniformity. Now you can go too far in this principle and you can become a uniformitarian and assume that everything has always happened the same way it does. This of course takes out of thinking the introduction of divine cause and divine intervention, which we'll talk about later in the series. But the principle of uniformity or causes in the past were like those in the present. And so what we're doing when we look back in the past and we see that object, we're assuming that similar intelligent causes had to form that. So we're using something in science called the principle of uniformity. It's reasonable to assume that if it took an intelligent cause to create Mount Rush Rushmore, then in the past, it also took to a an intelligent cause to create something similar to Mount Rushmore. If we cannot make, catch this, if we cannot make reasonable inferences like these, then we cannot know anything past. So, for instance, it's impossible to solve a crime without the use of the principle of uniformity. How many of you remember the murder of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman? Everybody remember that? And uh, O.J. Simpson and the, the trial and everything. When the detectives showed up at the murder scene, how did they know that Ron and Nicole were not killed by a natural cause? How do we know that they weren't struck by lightning? Well, they looked for 
clues. They looked for evidence. So they saw um, uh, multiple stab wounds, which obviously pointed to intelligence of some kind. We're not saying that it was a good intelligence. It was an evil intelligence. But, 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 so, so they saw multiple stab wounds. They saw bloody footprints. Lightning doesn't leave bloody footprints. Uh, they found a bloody glove. I mean, there's multiple pieces of evidence that led them to assume that, okay, they didn't die by, by natural causes. What did they use? They used the principle of uniformity to make these inferences. In fact, every police department in America uses the principle of uniformity and what we call forensic science to do good, to, good detective work. Most crimes do not have, again, smoking gun proof. They have to build a case from circumstantial evidence, and it's the weight of the evidence. So let me be clear. We're not saying that any one of these arguments in any one of the weeks of this series is the smoking gun proof for the existence of God. But what we're saying is as you build the case, does God exist? Does he not exist? And you add up all of the arguments. We're only going to be covering three of the major arguments. There's over 20 good arguments for the existence of God. But when you add up these arguments, you start to see the weight of the evidence leads to conclude beyond a reasonable doubt that there is an all-powerful God who spoke this universe into existence. And so this is what we're looking at when we're trying to get at causes from the past. We're looking at this principle of uniformity. Now, in the design argument, in the teleological argument, there are two origin questions that we're looking at. What caused the universe? And we looked at this last week, and so we'll, we'll spend a little time here looking at the design of the universe, but then specifically, what caused life? So we're going to be, again, looking back through the telescope, but then also into the microscope today as we consider this question of design. So the design argument, what caused the universe and what caused life? So when we look at the universe and we ask ourselves, okay, is there anything in the present that we can see that, that shows that there was design? that there was purpose, that there was intentionality, specificity, I'll get that right before we end today, complexity. And then can we infer as we look back that also when we look at the past, this also had intelligent design. This is what we're looking at. And when we look at the cause of the universe, there's really only two possibilities. It either was created by intelligence or it was created by natural law. The law of excluded middle, the law of non-contradiction lead us to only two possibilities. And so as we look at this, we're going to see that the universe is precisely designed. Um, we've already actually disproving that natural law could be the cause because nature itself is a created thing. And so as we look at this today, we see that the anthropic principle reveals the fingerprint of the creator. The anthropic principle reveals the fingerprint of the creator. Do you remember this quote from Tim Keller several weeks ago? I'll, I'll put it up there again. Though there cannot be irrefutable proof, for some, they're looking for, you know, I want smoking gun proof. You're not going to get it. If that could have been gotten, the debate would be over a long time ago, all right? But though there cannot be irrefutable proof for the existence of God, many people have found strong clues for his reality, divine fingerprints in many places. And so that's what we're looking at. We're looking at fingerprints. We're looking at evidence. We're looking at clues. And so the anthropic principle reveals the fingerprints of the creator. The universe was precisely designed so that mankind could exist. How do we know this? 
We know this because of advancements in science and technology where we've only discovered actually more gaps. There's an argument that you'll hear a lot when we talk about the teleological argument, the cosmological argument, and people will say, oh, well, you're just a Christian who's just believing in the God of the gaps. And the assumption is, is that as we get more science and as we get more technology and as we get more learning, we'll be able to fill those gaps and we won't need God anymore. Do you realize that actually if you study this issue out, you'll find that the more we know about science, the more gaps there are. It's mind-blowing. When you look at the very fabric of reality in quantum physics and mechanics, and you're just like, poof, I don't understand this at this point. There is some point where you're like, you have to see this. And so science itself is creating more gaps. We're seeing a universe greater than we could have ever imagined. Darwin, when he wrote his book, The Origin of Species, never even fathomed how intricate a single cell amoeba was. And as you'll see today, it was far more intricate than he could have ever imagined. So as we look at these anthropic principles, and, and, and what is an anthropic principle? Basically, an anthropic principle is, is something that must be a part of the universe for life to even hope to exist. There's at least 122 anthropic principles. As, as I said, as science has grown and gotten more uh, into this, they found hundreds more. But let's just say 122 anthropic principles for even human life to exist. Let me just give you several examples here. These aren't in your notes, but just look up at the screen. Hopefully you can read this. The sun's temperature is estimated at over 20 to million degrees Celsius. The earth is located at just the right position to sustain life as we know it. The earth is rotating on its axis at a little over a thousand miles an hour. How many of you feel like you're moving at that? No, you don't feel that, but it's, it's happening. And we're simultaneously moving around the sun at 70,000 miles an hour. How many of you wish you could use that on your way to work on a Monday morning? That'd be great. Uh, the sun and its solar system are whirling through space at 600,000 miles an hour in an orbit so large that it has been estimated it would take over 220 million years just to complete a single orbit, orbit in our galaxy. <sighs> Incredible. The earth, as it moves in its orbit around our sun, only departs from a, in a, from a straight, light by one, straight line by one-ninth of an inch every 18 miles. If it departed by only one-eighth of an inch, we would come so near to the sun that we would be incinerated. An eighth of an inch. The earth, if it only moved an eighth of an inch difference, we would be incinerated. If it moved by one-tenth of an inch the other way, we would find ourselves so far from the sun that we would freeze to death. The earth is about 240,000 miles from the moon whose gravity produces ocean tides. If the moon were moved closer to the earth by just one-fifth, the tides would be so enormous that twice a day they would reach 35 to 50 feet high over most of the earth's surface. And you thought you had a lot of water this week. Just wait. Also did some research this week, and do you realize that in our solar system there's 181 moons around planets? Of course, earth has one moon. And you realize that in the 181 moon-planet relationships in our solar system, there's only one where you can get a total solar eclipse and be able to view it from the surface of the planet. And that is right here on planet Earth. It's as if someone wanted us to look up and see the sun go completely black and consider our place in the universe. If you do any kind of search on Google, you're going to find all these anthropic principles. There's a great website I'll mention later in our small group where you can find many of these. 
But just listen to these, and I'm just going to read through some briefly. But the evidence is overwhelming for the fact that if any one of these was not existent, life would not exist. Think about this. There are the same number of electrons as protons to a standard deviation of 1 in 10th to the 10 to the 37th power. That is 1 with 37 zeros after it. Meaning that if there was more electrons than protons, the universe would be too electrically charged and you'd go around shocking yourself all the time. Anyway, the one-to-one electron-to-proton ratio throughout the universe yields our universe uh, electrically neutral. All the fundamental particles of the same kind are identical. Energy exactly equals mass. Now, this is fascinating when you start to think about it, but one of the laws of thermodynamics says that matter cannot be created nor destroyed. Even scientists in the laboratory who claim to create something are actually taking other particles, other matter, and they're just converting it into something else. Science, by the very power of their, scientists, by the very power of their mouth, cannot speak a grain of sand into existence. Do you realize that the, one of the anthropic principles states that the exact mass of the universe for life to exist is so exact that if you could speak another grain of sand into existence all of reality would, clap, would collapse in upon itself because there would be too much mass in the universe. One grain of sand, meaning that every grain of sand on every seashore in the world is meant to be there. There's so many more that we could go through and we could read just thinking of the finely tuned parameters of our solar system. Uh, if we didn't have Jupiter where it was in its orbit, we would be pounded by comets. Have you remember look, looking at the Shoemaker-Levy 9 comet that traveled through our solar system and made all the news? Uh, eight or nine fragments, strike, or uh, actually even more than that, struck the, struck the planet of Jupiter. And those spots that we were looking at were bigger than the Earth. How many of you are thankful for the or the solar system vacuum cleaner of Jupiter? Can I get a witness? My wife thought she got to deal with her new vacuum. No, Jupiter's a great vacuum for pulling out all that junk and keeping us safe. Same way with Saturn, uh, pulling all those harmful asteroids and comets to them. As you, um, just all these things, um, scientists say that in the Milky Way, um, we are in the, just the right place in the Milky Way because if we were in one of the actual spiral, we're actually situated between two of the outer spiral arms. If we were actually in the spiral arm, there would be too much radiation for life to exist. If we were too far out, then we, we would be, um, uh, hold on up. See, uh, there, all these things are going through my mind as I think about this. So, so, we would, so if we were in the other way, we, we would not be able to see any other part of the universe because we'd be in the uh, nebulae and we'd be in all the star clusters. We wouldn't even be able to see the night sky. It'd be so bright. And so there's all these principles that we look at. They're overwhelming when you think about it. Catch this. How many of you, does, does anybody have a quarter? Does anybody have a quarter? Anybody have a quarter with them? Okay, we're in a cashless society now. Imagine if I had a quarter. Do you realize that the size of our gal- or the size of our solar system on scale compared to the Milky Way galaxy? So the Milky Way galaxy is our home galaxy, and our solar system is inside of the Milky Way galaxy. Our solar system would be the size of a quarter on the desert of Nevada in the entire size of the United States in comparison to the Milky Way galaxy. That's how big our solar system is. It's overwhelming when we think about the relative size of how 
big we think we are. Then as we look out and we say, wow, what is man that you are mindful of him, God? You know, some people have asked, why did God go to all the trouble to create all that? Well, think about it. What would creation be if it only stopped at the tops of the clouds? Have you ever thought about that? What would creation be if it only stopped at the tops of the clouds? We wouldn't get this sense of awe and just sheer measure of being overwhelmed at the power and greatness and the, and the, ama- and the amazing miracle of life that we live in. You can look a lot of these, these uh, anthropic principles up. There, there's so many, but one that has always boggled my mind, and this is one of my favorite is the average distance between stars in our galaxy is about 30 trillion miles. 30 trillion. Now, um, in fact, one of the anthropic principles says that if stars were any closer together, again, human life could not exist. So our nearest star to us is Alpha Centauri, 4.7, 4.6 light years away. How many of you have ever been able to go outside at night and look up and see the space station orbiting our Earth? How many of you have ever caught that? Isn't that cool? There's an app that'll allow you to get uh, push notifications when that happens. So if you wanna find out about that, come to my small group afterwards. I'll show you how to set that up. But when you watch that space station scrolling across the sky at night and you're able to see it, that space station is one of the, it, it is the fastest object we have orbiting the planet in fact, our, our rocket propulsion technology allows us to go about 17 and a half thousand miles an hour. And so that space station is orbiting the earth at 17 half, 17 and a thousand, 17.5 thousand miles an hour, all right? Do you realize that if we were to get in the space station and we were to set course for Alpha Centauri, that it would take 200,000 years to get to the closest star. If you're a Trekkie, I hate to break it to you, but there's a reason that Star Trek is science fiction. (laughs) We will never be able to get to those stars. I'm sorry, we can't even get to our next door neighbor. 30 trillion miles away. So to put it in layman's terms, if you left at the time of Christ in the space station, you would be one one hundredth. Yeah, one one hundredth of the way there. Now, incredible to think about. As you look at that, as you consider this, what is reasonable? Can a person reasonably be expected to believe that these exacting requirements for life as we know it have been met just by accident? The earth is exactly the right distance from the sun. It's exactly the right distance from the moon. It has exactly the right diameter. It has exactly the right atmospheric pressure. It has exactly the right tilt. It has exactly the right amount of oceanic water. It has exactly the the right amount of mass and weight. If this many requirements were met in any other area of life, the idea that they had been provided just by accident would be dismissed as immediately ludicrous. Be like you, you know, taking your science fair project into school. Hey, kids, don't try this, by the way, because it won't work. But imagine if you went to your, you know, science fair and you did one of those little foam ball uh, solar system models. How many of you ever built one of the foam ball solar system models? 
It'd be like you going to your science team saying, oh yeah, that just happened. No, it didn't just happen. You're the one that built it, right? And you'd probably not get a good grade for being a smarty pants, right? Anyway. These kinds of images, I'm just always at a loss for words for. Isaiah 40, verse 25 and 26 says, To whom then will ye liken me? This is God speaking. Or who shall I be equal to, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high. You know what? I think some of us, sometimes we just need to stop and stop looking at all the cares around us and just go out on a clear night like tonight will be, thankfully, there's a clear sky tonight. And just look up and see if you can begin to count the stars. God brings out every single one of them. He calls them all by names, the greatness of his, of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one fails. I'm not even going to try to begin to tell you the number involved with how many stars there are in the known universe. It's a number too big to even say. <laughs> Google it, okay. Why does God put all those immense universe, all these galaxies, stars, nebulae, and clusters, why does the universe not stop at the cloud tops? Because of verses like these. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. You know, reading that verse after looking at the Hubble deep field image, like I showed you just a couple of screens ago, now I start to get an understanding of God's mercy. It doesn't just reach the cloud tops. It reaches farther than the galaxy that they think is farthest away from us. That's how great his mercy is to you and me. What a mighty God. What a great God. Dr. Arnold Penzias, I mentioned him last week. He was one of the two scientists that discovered the cosmic microwave background radiation. He says this, astronomy leads us to a unique event. You don't say. <laughs> a universe which was created out of nothing and delicately balanced. Did you catch that? Delicately balanced. The teleological argument right there, designed to provide exactly the conditions required to support life in the absence of an absurdly improbable accident. The observations of modern science seem to suggest an underlying, one might say, supernatural plan. So what caused the universe? We didn't have time to get near where I wanted to with all the anthropic principles that are there to show us that this universe was created with specificity and complexity, purpose. And so since the finite universe, time, space, and matter came into existence, then there must be something outside of that, at least to our understanding, that brought it into existence. That being must be powerful, eternal, and 
again, to our understanding, immaterial to this universe who brought this universe. See, this universe is contingent. It needs a cause. So in light of the anthropic principle, that being must also be intelligent because that being created this universe so that life could exist. So that tells me that that being also is alive. It's self-aware. And those are exactly the attributes that the Bible applies to God. The Bible describes God as this intelligent, eternal, immaterial, all-powerful, incomprehensible being. But yet through the gospel, he wants us to know him. And so as we look at the context of life, as we look now at the, what caused life, we must know that this is a theistic universe, that this universe is contingent upon God. There's a powerful God that created the universe. And, and if that's the case, then he also has something to do with the creation of life. Augustine said this, men go abroad to wonder at the heights of mountains, at the huge waves of the sea, at the long course of the rivers, at the vast compass of the ocean, at the circular motion of the stars. And they pass by themselves without ever wondering. You know, we look out and we say, wow, incredible, incomprehensible. But you know what? When you turn on the microscope, you're able to see a universe that goes the other way into the infinitesimally small that is also mind-blowing. So what caused life? There's only two possibilities, either intelligent causes or natural or non-intelligent causes. So we're, either it was an intelligent design or it was spontaneous generation, somehow in some way. And so back in Darwin's day, when he wrote The Origin of Species, from which a lot of the modern day naturalism and scientism, evolutionary, secular thinking came from, in Darwin's day, they did not think that this single-celled organism, an amoeba, was all that complicated. They thought it was just a blob of goo from the pond. Hopefully no one in here has ever been called pond scum, <laughs> but that's what this amoeba was. They just thought, oh, it's just pond scum. It's just goo. It's just a simple single-celled organism. Oy, oy, oy. Little did they know, little did they know that that amoeba had as much information in its single cell as a thousand Encyclopedia Britannicas. What you're looking at is an image of the DNA double helix molecule that makes up the fabric of our life. I call it double helix because as they look at this under a microscope, it's literally a double helix ladder woven. What does that verse say in Psalm 139? We are intricately woven. Yeah. How many of you remember alphabet cereal? How many of you still eat alphabet cereal? Anybody? Anybody? That's some good stuff right there, alphabet cereal. If you were to walk into your kitchen on a Saturday morning, and you were to see that box of alphabet cereal knocked over on the table, and in the midst of all the uh, pieces of cereal, you know, they're all different letters. That's why it's fun to get this. You can, you know, learn spelling as you eat. Oh, good idea. Learn spelling as you eat. And you were to see on the table this message. Take out the garbage, mom. As you look at that message, what would you infer logically? 
Would you infer logically that the cat knocked over the box of cereal on its way out the door? And somehow those letters just fell on the table at exactly the right angle and exactly the right order so that you would see it? Would you assume that an earthquake earlier that morning while you were asleep knocked over that box and shook those letters into that order? Would you assume a natural cause? No, of course not. You would conclude that an intelligent being, your mother, was behind that message. And what does that tell us? That only minds create messages. That's there in your note. Only minds create messages. And so as we look at the language of life, the DNA molecule, only a mind, if you really get into this and study, only a mind could create something as incredibly specific and complex as DNA. Now, when you first look at DNA, DNA you find out it's a four-letter code sequence. And you're like, oh, well, that's pretty simple. We've got 26 letters in our English alphabet. You're telling me that the DNA code's only four letters? Yes, but hold on. Computer language is only ones and zeros. And we are still trying to figure out how to get a computer as far advanced as the human mind is. And we look at DNA and we see this four-letter sequence. Literally, it's chemically encoding information. Science is still trying to figure this one out of how DNA and RNA, and RNA is needed to actually work through the sequence of the DNA code. So which came first? You get down to an issue of what they call irreducible complexity. We don't have time to go into that. And so this might sound simple at first, but not when you realize that the most advanced computers we have today are still basic binary systems. They're, they're working on quantum computing, of course, but DNA co communicates very complex and specific messages for life. So as we were talking about that one-celled amoeba earlier, right? Richard Dawkins, if you know anything about modern-day atheism, he's one of the lead spokesmen for the new atheists. He says this, some species of the unjustly called primitive amoebas have as much information in their DNA as a thousand Encyclopedia Britannica. Hello, information. Look at your body. Just look at your hand for a second, all right? This is your hand, right? Do you realize that one human cell in your body contains 5 million pages of information in one cell. That's 25,200 page books. One cell. The average adult human being has 100 trillion cells that make up their body. Which means, and I had to look this one up, I did look this number up. In fact, that 5 million pages of information in one cell is crammed into the nucleus of that cell, which is about one one-hundredth the width of a human hair. 5 million pages. I don't think anybody in this room has ever read that many pages, even if you were in a doctoral program where you're forced to read continually. <laughs> the average adult human being has 100 trillion cells, which means... I did the math. Your body has 500 quintillion pages of information that makes up you. Just you. Just you. What? So 5 million pages of information in each cell in your body, 
500 quintillion pages of information in you. That's a big book. <laughs> so husbands, later today, you want to go home to your wife and say, baby, you're complicated. You're actually speaking the truth. Complicated, amazing miracle we call life. Every second, your body produces 4 million red new blood cells. You just created 4 million red new blood cells. Congratulations. You just created 4 million red new blood cells. Congratulations. You are very productive sitting here. It's incredible to think about. If we were to uncoil the DNA in all of your body cells and lay it end to end, it would stretch 10 billion miles. Do you know how far that is? Pluto. From here to Pluto, and by the way, Pluto in my heart is still a planet. It would, it would stretch the, from your body, not the whole human race. No, no, your body, just you, your DNA would stretch from here to Pluto. I don't have enough faith to believe that that happened by blind accident. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. The human eye, if the human eye was a digital camera, it would have 576 megapixels. How many of you got a nice camera at home? 25, 40 megapixels? There is a camera right now that's 200 megapixels. It's the most expensive digital camera on earth, $48,000 made by Hasselblad. It's not even as complex as the human eye, which is a 576 megapixel camera. Charles Darwin said this, to suppose that the eye with all of its unique contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, for emitting different amounts of light and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree possible. Thank you, Charles Darwin. It is absurd. We agree. Well, when you got all started, and this might loop, we're going to hope it loops. What is that? I showed you this maybe a year or two ago. And if it doesn't loop, okay, yeah, it's looping. Do you know what that is? That is a human egg being fertilized by a sperm cell. And at the moment of conception, there is a bright flash of light. In fact, when you were brought into this existence, your mama's piece of you and your daddy's piece of you, when they connected, there was this bright flash of light. This is what they call a zinc explosion. There's zinc that's giving off here. And that is at the moment when that when your daddy's piece of you met up with your mama's piece of you and you became you. In fact, when this mission was initiated, your dad sent 300 million of his pieces to the one piece of your mom, which was about the size of a period at the end of a sentence. And they were all swimming towards that little piece to try to win the battle 
300,000 swimmers. They were swimming at the rate of 34,000 miles, miles an hour to scale. So you've never gone faster than when you were trying to come into existence. And congratulations, you won. <laughs> and you're here. When you began at that bright flash you immediately began to replicate cells at 4,000 cells a second. Some of your cells that formed you became brain cells, some heart cells, some lung cells, etc. We, we, don't, we don't even fully understand how all those cells knew what to become. As human beings, we have never even created something as complex as a single human cell. How could the four blind forces of nature, gravity, electromagnetism, and the two nuclear forces, even cause a single cell to begin to exist? Natural law does not prescribe anything. It only describes what has already happened. The human brain, wow, weighs three pounds, has about 100 billion neurons, Thoughts travel at 270 miles an hour from neuron to neuron, faster than the Venom Hennessy GT street legal sports car. That's fast. You have about 70,000 thoughts a day. Neuroplasticity is where your brain can be rewired. That's why practice makes perfect. That's why when you practice a discipline, you get better. That's called neuroplasticity. You can literally change how you think. And then, believe it or not, this blows my mind, but they have done tests about extrasensory perception. I'm not sure how far the, this goes, but they've done tests, and they've shown either happy images on a computer screen or distressing images on a computer screen. They've hooked up all these sensors. They've measured brainwave patterns, and they have found that the brain actually can anticipate six seconds before knowing what image it's going to probably see. We have yet to begin to fully understand the human brain. Your brain, if it was a 2,000 seat or 20,000 seat basketball arena, in each one of those seats, you would have a thousand books on each seat to represent the knowledge that your human brain stores. That would be 20 million books of knowledge worth of information stored in the human brain. I like what Steve Hawking said. The odds against a universe like ours emerging out of nothing, out of something like the Big Bang are, are enormous. I think there are clearly religious implications. I agree. In 1991, a movie came out uh, inspired by Carl Sagan's book, Contact. Contact, uh, in that movie, it starred Jodie Foster, and it was a movie about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence through the SETI program, which is a program that continues to this day. And what they're searching for is a sign of extraterrestrial intelligence. The plot of the movie was the discovery of a non-random signal coming somewhere from outer space. How would they know that the pattern wasn't just random noise? And so if you remember the scene in the movie, if you've seen it, Jodie Foster is sitting out listening to the headphones, listening to the signals, and all of a sudden she hears something and she runs into the lab 
and they say, we've, we, we've, we found it, we've got something. And what they had were a series, a string of prime numbers coming in over the, over the signal. Um, soon the military descended upon that lab after, after hearing about that. And of course, the military guy was skeptical. You know, he would say, why? Uh, in fact, I think he asked the question, why wouldn't aliens just not speak to us in English? Kind of, you know, one track there. Jody responds that math is the universal language. Every alphabet can be reduced to numbers. So they found this simple sequence of prime numbers from 1 to 111, and they knew that it had to be from an intelligent source. I hope you see the connection. Carl Sagan said this, if we could find just one message from outer space, it would be worth a great price. Isn't it amazing how many billions of dollars that we have spent in trying to find signs of intelligent life somewhere out there and we would settle for just, he said this, just a sentence or two. Someone said, well, how much would we need? Just a sentence or two. That would prove that there is intelligence out there and that we are not alone. My question is this. If logically you would assume that intelligent life exists way out there, then why do you not, by just a simple sentence or two, then why will you not conclude that we are derived from an intelligent being that brought us into existence? Fred Hoyle said, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics as well as chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. I agree. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. We've looked at the premise. Every design has a designer. This universe and life is from a designer. It was caused by a designer. We've looked at the evidence for that. So therefore, we can conclude that universe and life had a designer. What does this mean for us? Well, hopefully it helps us to understand why we hold to the faith that we do. But as I thought about this just practically and from an applicational perspective, you know what? You're God's grand masterpiece. You were intricately woven to be a reflection of him made in his image. That's incredible to think about. You are uniquely you, and God meant for you to exist. So whenever Satan tries to tell you that you're worthless, you know what you need to do? Say, hey, I thought you can find out about how, what, what something's worth by what someone's willing to pay for it. See, the Bible tells me that I was bought with the precious blood of Christ. That tells me that I'm of infinite value to God. And if that's the case, how much does that mean then that God wants a relationship with me? Hey, if God has a purpose for all of creation and he went to such great care to make sure that life could even exist, then it's only reasonable to conclude that he has an amazing purpose for your life. Right? If you look at this universe, wow, purpose. It's incredible. And, and, and let me tell you, if you get into those 
anthropic principles, you'll be like, wow, purpose, incredible intentionality. Then that means God has a purpose for you. And the joy of this life is to discover that purpose, to live for that purpose. Because that is for why you were created.